morning. We are in the last of our sermons in this series that we've called A Host for My Name, and it was named that way because we've been looking at the way God is working in his creation uh, and the, the, his desire for his own glory to be known in the creation. And so we started, uh, the first message was, I guess, five weeks ago, looking directly at the glory of God. Who is God and uh, why is his glory such a controlling theme? How does it filter down into creation and everything around us? Then we looked at the glory of the church and God's purpose to redeem a people for himself through all history and across all places on the earth through the work of the church, which naturally led to masculinity and femininity because these are echoes uh, or role plays of the church, of Christ's relationship with his church. He has also given us male and female, particularly in the context of marriage, to image his purposes for his creation. And so our last two Sundays, we looked at masculinity and then at femininity and what is God saying in those things. And it's very important uh, that we see uh, these things in light of what God's word says, in light of reality, rather than in terms of the myths uh, and the false ideas and conception and teaching that is in the world around us. And so this last one, we're going to look specifically at marriage and at family, um, as we hopefully have a conception of what masculinity is for and what femininity is for. Uh, and now in most of, for most of us, for most of our experience, the testing ground for that is going to be in the context of marriage and children. And so we're going to look this morning at Ephesians 5, 22 through 6, verse 4. And once you're there, then please stand as we read God's word. Ephesians 5, 22 through 6, verse 4. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water, with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as they love their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh." This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. But bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And may God bless the reading of his word. So again, this naturally follows looking at biblical masculinity and biblical femininity. If we have a a biblical view of both of those things, we are much better off uh, in terms of being able to understand the theology of marriage and a family. And we can start by saying that marriage is a covenantal arrangement. 
we, we tend to think of marriage as a contract in our day, or we tend to confuse what covenants and what contracts are. We've talked about this in Sunday school. But a contract essentially is any agreement that two people can make by mutual agreement. And they can agree to any terms that they wish, uh, provided they're both satisfied. And upon mutual agreement, they can terminate their contract. So if, if I'm tired of making widgets and someone's tired of paying me money for widgets they don't need, we can just voluntarily uh, change or terminate the contract. Or we can make the contract as lopsided or as bizarre as we want, and that is legally okay. Covenants work differently because covenants are not a negotiation between two people or between man and God. A covenant is something that God just presents. Okay? A covenant is a sovereign, uh, it's a solemn bond, sovereignly administered with attendant blessings and curses. Okay? God determines what the covenant is. He establishes all the terms and then he just gives it to man. And there is no negotiation uh, there whatsoever. The terms are uh, on God's terms. We receive a covenant, we negotiate a contract. So the terms of a covenant are not negotiable. Which means marriage is not fluid. Marriage is not customizable. Okay? We cannot redefine marriage. Uh, and when governments try, as they have in our day, to redefine marriage, all that they're doing is saying, we don't know what marriage is. Okay? That's all they're saying. If, if, if two men or two women have a marriage certificate on their wall, what they have is a piece of paper from the province of Manitoba with the province's admission, yeah, we have no idea what marriage is. Okay? And, and I would encourage quite strongly, never ever talk about same-sex marriage as though it exists. It doesn't exist. Okay, and if you speak about it even negatively, even in an instructing manner, uh, if children hear those words often enough, they'll start to think, oh, this is real. No, it is not real. It never has existed, it doesn't exist today, and it will never exist at any point in the future, no matter how many people think it does. Marriage is fixed. Marriage is what God says it is. One man, one woman for life. Polygamy, likewise, uh, is not marriage the way God has designed it. So the way God has designed covenants to work, this also means that the nature of marriage and family is federal. And federal just refers to a league or a covenant, but in federalism, you have a head who represents a group of people, right? So in our federal government, we have one man who represents our area, and when he votes, all of us are there voting with him. He's representing all of us, okay? That's how federalism works. There is a head who represents a mass of humanity. And in scripture, we have several federal heads. We talked about Adam this morning. When Adam sinned, he was representing every last person in this room because we were all there with him. We were all there with him. We were in his loins. He represented everybody, and we all fell in Adam. Mercifully, it works the same way with Christ. Christ represents all those who are grafted into him by faith. If you are in Christ, then his righteousness represents you, and he is your federal head. So federal heads intercede on behalf of their people. And having a covenantal or federal view of marriage and the family isn't just one minor adjustment in thinking. This changes literally everything about the way we approach marriage, the way we approach church, the way we approach childbearing, everything. Because we live in an age where everything is about self-expression. But a biblical concept of households reminds us that everything is actually about God's self-expression. This is his world in which he is delighted to display his glory. So this world is about God's self-expression, not my or your self-expression. 
Ephesians 5.32 tells us that the role of husband and wife in marriage were given by God in order for him to teach creation about the union of Christ and his bride. And so because marriage is covenantal, we are reminded of a few things. One, it is objective. The one flesh union that comes from marriage is real. Verse 31. It's public. And when God makes covenants with the patriarchs and the federal heads of the past, there's rituals and witnesses that seal the covenant. The Bible does not give us one formula for how our wedding ceremonies ought to look. But we do know from the model of scripture that it is objective. And there's witnesses and rituals. For example, in Genesis 17, when God passes through the pieces, when he cuts his covenant with Abram. Okay, so there's rituals or ceremonies that represent or that display or symbolize what God is doing in this thing. And this is important, the public and the objective nature of this with witnesses, because uh, we've probably all heard of someone who thought in the heat of the moment in the back seat of a car, let's quickly get married in God's eyes. Okay? That's not a marriage covenant. That's a boy looking for an angle. Okay? A, a covenant is objective. There's witnesses who can hold you to account. There's rituals uh, that show the gravity of this thing. Okay? And some of our own customs reflect this. A bride's beauty and purity, often featured in the way she presents herself or with a white dress, is a key feature. And this, uh, I think, suitably represents what is being taught in verse 26. A bride being given by her father to her husband is another thing that shows honor, that shows this federal aspect of marriage, of headship, and of a bride being uh, under the protection and care uh, moving from one man to another. We also typically and I think for Christians, should have a Christian minister presiding over the ceremony. And usually this happens in a church to remind us that this is all done before the face of God. All of this is ultimately in front of God. And we have witnesses to remind us that the nature of God's work in the world is public and objective. This isn't private. None of the gospel is done behind closed doors. It's out in the open. And that is the nature of God's work in the world. And so our marriages are out in the open as well. Our wedding ceremonies are in the open. Witnesses remind us that the nature of God's work is this way. And witnesses also help us to enforce our vows. That's why we call them there. And so further, the vows recognize the importance of the one flesh union. And this is an important thing to note, again, in an age uh, that prizes romance over true love. And it probably, if it sounds weird, well, you're contrasting romance with love, and that tells you how deeply we've swallowed the assumptions of our culture, that we just assume that romance and love are the same thing, and they are not. Of course, attraction is a key piece of marriage, and I'd speak positively of romance to be, you know, swept away in a story, and it's not just about, you know, erotic love. Romance is everywhere in in a good novel or, or so forth or in a good story, but love is defined by God and not by romance novels or Hallmark movies. Okay. Romance is about emotions, about feelings, and interestingly, is almost entirely centered on yourself. And that's the ironic thing about romance. It's not so much about the other person as how the other person makes me, who just so happens to be the most important person in the universe, how it makes me feel. Okay. Romance is self-centered. Romance is self-focused. It's narcissistic, if that's our view of love. Whereas true biblical love is looking out for another person's eternal well-being. And so this is another way of saying that when we make marriage vows, our romance, our romantic feelings don't protect the vows. The vows protect the feelings. Okay? So, 
we don't make vows and then say, well, yeah, but life got hard, so I guess the, the, the vows are null and void. No, no. Rather, we make the vows because life will get hard. I promise you. It will get hard. There will be a test. That's why you make the vows to protect the love. The love does not protect the vows, uh, and then they can just be done away with. It works the other way around. So a Christian marriage requires two things. A covenantal bond between a husband and wife and a one flesh union, verse 31. If you have covenantal vows, but there is uh, not a sexual bond, you're just formal roommates. You're roommates with a really formal living arrangement. However, if you have a sexual bond, but there's no covenantal vows protecting that union, you're friends with benefits, or as the Bible calls it, a fornicator, sexually immoral. Okay? We need both for true marriage to happen. The covenantal commitment protects the intimacy and the potency of the sexual union. And we can think of sex like a fire. In the safety of a wood stove, it brings light, it brings warmth, and it provides a pleasant aura in the house. But if it leaves the confines of the stove and say, well, if it's good in the stove, it must be good everywhere. Well, try that by putting a fire on your carpet or on your blinds or on the wall. Now it's not, it's not warm, it's not inviting, there's nothing positive. Now it's destructive. You've got a catastrophe on your hands. Sex belongs in one place and one place only, which is in the confines of covenantal marriage. Because sex is potent, it must be protected by this covenantal structure. And again, if we zoom out and look at how the symbology works here, how this relates to Christ and the church, the one flesh union demonstrates Christ's bond to his bride, the church. So confining sex to the covenant of marriage demonstrates that Christ has committed himself to the church and to those people who have been redeemed by his gospel. Christ is not a savior of everyone indiscriminately. Christ is a savior to those who are his and none other. He is a savior to one bride, one church, one people of God who have gotten there honestly. He is not in union with secularism. He is not the savior of Islam. He is not in union with theological liberalism or Eastern mysticism. He is a savior only to those who belong to him. Those who don't come to the sheep gate do not belong to him. Christ is a one-woman man. And likewise on the feminine side, the church commits herself to Christ and Christ alone. The church is not to cozy herself up to the spirit of the age, to heresy, to unorthodox theology, or to cults of personality. And so this also helps if we understand what's being communicated in marriage. This also helps to understand the pain and the tragedy when things don't work, when divorce happens. And we live in an age of rampant divorce, easy divorce even, and we generally look at the pain and the grief that people experience in a divorce, or we look at the downstream difficulty for kids or uh, the complexity that results, and these things are all true. But if and when we understand what really marriage is communicating, do you know what the most devastating part of divorce is? It's telling a lie about who Christ is. It's telling a church, it's telling a lie about the church. If a, if a man abandons his wife, he is saying that Christ will indeed leave you or forsake you if he gets a better offer. He will. It's lying about who Christ is. Likewise, if a husband neglects or abandons her husband, she's saying that the church doesn't really need to follow Christ. After all, isn't he just one option among several? And this is why, a, in biblical conception, adultery and idolatry are very often connected. This is why God calls Israel a whore and an adulteress by the prophets when she breaks her covenant with Yahweh. 
And yet even here, God in his patience and grace is happy to bring his bride back to himself, as is so clearly demonstrated uh, in the lifestyle of Hosea and Gomer, where Hosea marries a prostitute and he goes and buys her back even after she is unfaithful. Christ is faithful to his unfaithful bride. And we need to take that mindset to our marriages as well. The potency and the power of the one flesh union takes us back to another theme that we've already looked at. And while modesty is a virtue for all Christians, the Bible clearly pulls the women aside and gives them special instructions on modesty. And why is this? We can see through the biblical narratives of men like Samson, David, Solomon, and others, as well as through the Proverbs, that women do in fact have sexual power over men. And this is one of those things that is just a brute fact of creation, whether we like it or not, whether we're even aware of it or not. And we've discussed this in the last two uh, messages. Men want to want, and women want to be wanted. And this arrangement will either take a godly form or an ungodly form. And of course, the godly arrangement here is covenantal marriage, biblical marriage. And the ungodly form is the kind of sexual license that we see in the world around us. Things like pornography, fornication, adultery, or the so-called common law marriage, which again is not marriage. But because woman is the glory of man, because she is the glory of the glory, she is highly prized. She's valuable. And valuable things are not to be treated as common or profane, but are guarded and protected. Okay? So some of us may leave a hammer or a wrench laying around someplace because those are profane things. Those are common things. They're not particularly special or valuable. However, you would not treat your grandma's china collection that way. Your grandma's china collection goes behind a a protective door. It goes in a case. It goes on display somewhere. Because it's valuable, it gets protected. And so a woman treating her body with modesty is showing that she understands that she is glorious. She is valuable. And a woman's sexuality is to be a locked garden with her husband and her husband alone in possession of the key. A woman who is interested in making sure that much of her body is on display is showing her urge to be valued, but she's doing it in a very destructive way. She's saying that she's common and profane instead of valuable and glorious. And men likewise, we have work to do here too, we're instructed to guard our thoughts and to flee temptation when it arises. So no one's off the hook here. Everyone has something to do in terms of our obedience in this area. And no matter how a woman is dressed, no matter how a woman carries herself, no man ever has a right to treat a woman in a crass or a rude or in a degrading manner. At the same time, a woman who wants to be treated with dignity should dress herself in a way that's consistent with what she says. She should show in her manner that she expects it. And if her dress and her speech are telling the world that her feminine dignity is profane, that she really doesn't value herself, she should not be surprised if she's surrounded by a whole bunch of people who actually agree with her. Okay? She will surround herself with people who agree she's not particularly valuable. Okay? That doesn't give anyone an excuse to treat her poorly, but we need to be consistent with our actions. So if I park my car and leave it unlocked in downtown Chicago, nobody on earth has a right to go in there and take my stuff. But you could say, Matt, what are you doing parking your car in Chicago and leaving it unlocked? <laughs> exactly. Okay? Exactly. No one has a right to it, but why would I do something like that? So marriage is the wood stove in which God designed this fire to be contained. And it is positively destructive everywhere else. In the right place, it does many good things. Everywhere else, it is destructive. 
<clears throat> One interesting commentator was a, actually a social and economic advisor in the Reagan years in the United States, who's later become a Christian, so his work is a mixed bag, George Gilder, wrote a book called Men in Marriage. And he looks at this not as a theologian so much in the 80s as a, a commentator. It's seeing true things, I think. He talks about how differently societies look, whether women prize their sexual dignity or not. And he says, in Christian societies which recognize the glory of women, marriage marks an important exchange in which man and woman commit themselves to one another. The dignity and the purity of the woman makes sex expensive. So the man has much incentive to do productive things in order to win a woman over. He engages in productive endeavors because he has a wife and children to provide for, to protect, and to lead. Gilder says, and I think rightly, societies are built by men who have families to feed because they have a strong incentive to be fruitful and productive and to use their strength constructively. And in societies that do not honor the value of women, an entirely different ethic takes over. Women are treated as little more than objects. And if they can be easily taken, and in our own time it's even more perverse because women aren't taken, they're offering themselves up for close to free, women start to be viewed as a one-trick commodity. And if they are cheap and freely available, a man has no incentive to provide much of anything in return. And thus his strength is not concentrated on anything productive. It dissipates. And this is exactly what the mother of Proverbs 31 is warning her son about when she tells him not to give his strength to women. Use your strength productively. And so I don't think it's any accident whatsoever that the rise of pornography and empty sex in our society correlates with men who refuse to buy property, with men who refuse to get a full-time job and prefer a part-time job so they can do full-time gaming in mom's basement into their 20s and 30s. These things are not unrelated in any way. If men in a society have no reason to use their strength constructively, they will use it destructively. And remember, patriarchy is inevitable. Men always lead. That has always been the case, it's the case, and it will always be the case. But men leading will either lead in Christ, and they will do constructive things, or they will turn in on themselves and become self-serving and destructive. So in a society where marriage is not prized, you end up with Vikings, pirates, and motorcycle gangs. Okay, which is the exact opposite of what Christianity creates. And there's always enough brute power in these male clubs to destroy a society. But none of these groups have the focus or the energy to build something productive. And so again, Gilder notes that civilizations are built by men that have families to feed. Stable marriage results in advanced agriculture, in central heating, in skyscrapers, and in moon landings. Okay, I think he's right. And this does fit with the Christian vision of creation, that man and woman together are on a joint mission for dominion, for the knowledge of the Lord to cover the earth as the waters cover the deep. And this is the hope of the major prophets like Isaiah and the minor prophets like Habakkuk and the psalmist and Moses in the Torah. This is the central prophetic theme is that the Lord uh, will fill the earth with his knowledge. And marriage is an important step in getting us there. The destructive nature of getting this wrong is also highlighted in Proverbs 8.36. If we do this wrong, the writer of Proverbs tells us, but he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. And all sin ultimately is a death wish. Anything that does not go by God's design is a death wish. And so everything we've learned so far about masculinity and femininity naturally flow into marriage. And this is the main testing ground for most of us to practice obedience in our gender. And yes, we must obey Christ according to our gender. 
Again, we need to always keep our eyes on the symbolism. And so what am I saying? This is a question we should ask. For short on application, or you're wondering how to make application, just think. If you're a man, what am I communicating about Christ if I do this, this, or this? And if you're a lady, ask yourself, what am I communicating about the nature of the church if I do this, this, or this? And if we understand what we're communicating, suddenly application starts to get easier. We need to keep our eyes on what we are communicating, who we are representing. In 1 Peter 3, verse 7, reminds us how powerful this communication is. Peter says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you in the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. And I've seen several people perplexed by this verse. I remember one time telling this verse to a friend and he was surprised it was in the Bible because he didn't think this was very biblical theology. But there it is. And so what is this saying? There is a certain logic here. A husband cannot treat his wife harshly and then expect Christ, who he is representing, to treat him considerately. You see what's happening? If you as the representative of Christ are not receptive and soft and considerate to your wife, why would the real Christ be considerate of you? That's the logic here. Don't expect me to answer your prayers if you can't treat your wife with respect. If you are going to treat her disrespectfully, if you are going to treat her harshly, I will return the favor to you with unanswered prayers until you catch on. So now, looking at marriage, and that is an important first step of family life. Naturally, what happens, again, in most cases, sometimes this doesn't work and it can be painful, but in most cases, the next step is children. And do we have a theology of children? I've done several thought experiments. Do you have a theology of children? Hmm. Think about that. Are children optional add-ons? I remember learning once in our uh, early married life that a husband and wife was a completed family unit. And that's almost true, okay? That can be true if, if God providentially hinders children and, and there's nothing we can do about that. A husband and a wife is a family unit. But I would say in most cases, it's an incomplete family unit. Children are not optional add-ons. And again, how do we treat children in our day and age that is focused on self-expression, that's focused on narcissism, on me? Do we have children just so that dad and mom can each have their own little mini-me? in order to relive their youth and pass their dreams on to? You know, I didn't crack the NHL, but my boy, he's going to play in the big leagues, right? Remember that song? Okay. Uh, And we tend to treat children that way. Because think, even this, a couple has one boy and one girl, and we call that the million-dollar family. Shut her down. Dad's got a little mini-me. Mom's got a mini-me. We're done. We're done. That's it. It's the perfect million-dollar family. Don't ruin it with more children. Is that a biblical view? And I do think we tend to have a narcissistic view of children just like we do of romantic love. In our confession, consistent with the other confessions of the historic Christian faith, in the London Baptist Confession, chapter 25, section 2 says, that marriage was ordained for the mutual help of husband and wife, for the increase of humanity with legitimate offspring, and for the prevention of immorality. One of the purposes, an important one, of marriage is to increase humanity with legitimate offspring. And this is indeed what the scriptures teach. In Malachi 2, verses 13 through 16, if you want to turn there, where uh, the prophet is giving uh, 
a judgment, really, to Israel and to Judah for her disobedience. He talks in family terms about this. Malachi 2, 13 through 16. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offerings or accepts it with favor from your hand. So notice here, these people are offering their offerings and they're weeping because God does not answer them. It sounds a little bit like what Peter was just talking about. God refuses to listen to them. They're weeping with their tears and God refuses to listen. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Okay? God is shutting his ears because men are treating their wives poorly. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence. See that? Divorce is violent. Divorce is violent. Divorce is killing something. And yes, there's grace. Yes, there's forgiveness. We learn that from Hosea. But these people are not ready to repent. They're consistent with just wanting to go their own way and God refuses to receive their sacrifices. He refuses to listen to their tears because of the way they are treating their families. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. So here we have God coming in national judgment against Israel because she has turned to chaos instead of to him. And the nation is in confusion and in ruin because the covenant of marriage is being profaned. Divorce is rampant, and even those who are married and have stayed married don't even seem to understand what marriage is for. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound at all familiar? Rampant divorce, we don't know what marriage is for, we don't know what children are for, and God is not answering our prayers, and he is consigning us to the chaos we are intent to create. I think it sounds familiar. So again, we need to counter this with a Christian conception of what we're doing. We need to be intentional in our marriages, in our child rearing. And we do see something important in verse 15. One of the primary purposes of marriage is to produce godly offspring. And this is entirely consistent with the rest of Scripture. This is consistent with the dominion mandate that our first parents received in the garden. It's consistent with the prophetic hope of the knowledge of the Lord covering the earth. And it is consistent with Christ's great commission. And so again, if we're going to do a thought experiment and think critically about why we have automatic answers to certain questions about practice or ethics without thinking about them, here's one for you. And I'm not saying too much here. Just think about this. Technology like the birth control is younger than many people in this room. Okay? It's a novel thing. Why is it when couples go to premarriage counseling, it's just assumed without any reflection that the woman's on birth control? I'm not saying it's wrong, but do we have a reason? Do we even think about why we do that? Or is that just, well, that's just what we do? I, I, yeah, I've never thought about it. It's just what we do. Let's think about these things. How do these ideas get there? I'm not saying it's a sin, more on that, but just think, why do we do what we do? Why do certain things seem so natural? Are we thinking through a biblical lens? And now we have something that's hardly a generation old that's so commonplace, it's just merely assumed, even by Christian couples, that this is the standard practice. And I do not think that there is a biblical prohibition against certain types of birth control methods. So don't hear me thinking there. I'm challenging assumptions. I'm not saying this is wrong. 
But I don't think, and I also don't think there's a biblical command to have as many babies as is physically possible. And there are Christians who believe in this quiverful movement, you know, have as many as you possibly can, and, and that may or may not be wise at all. But children in Scripture are always spoken of as a blessing from the Lord. And so our overall posture, our attitude about children should be one of gladly receiving them into our homes. The growth of the church through its history has been made up of evangelism of new people, new converts, and the production of new Christians in Christian homes. And this latter method has generally done by far the bulk of the heavy lifting in terms of the growth of the church through history. So let's not discount the significance of raising Christian kids in a Christian home and teaching them to love Jesus. Being fruitful is the first command that God gives to our first parents. And while this certainly includes more than childbearing, it includes everything, so it's not just focused just on one thing, but it doesn't include less than child rearing. And so Christian childbearing and Christian child rearing are an important part of being fruitful, of exercising dominion in creation and making the Lord known and advancing his purposes. And again, there's a difference between childbearing and child rearing. Just producing children isn't enough. They also need to be taught. Okay, so uh, the corrupt priests in the Old Testament would not have been blessed if they had had uh, seven corrupt sons instead of two corrupt sons. So this isn't an automatic. The rearing, the training is just as important, perhaps more important than producing people. But we need to have this mindset about what is God doing with children. And I don't think this is an area where people need to meddle in each other's business. I'm just challenging all of us to think about this in the confines of our own home. Kevin DeYoung, a number of years ago, talks about this aspect of children. Do we have a theology of children? And given that the replacement rate is 2.1 women per children, no, that wouldn't make sense, would it? 2.1 children per woman, he suggests, and again, I don't think in a legalistic way, but just in a terms of think about the long-term future, that we at least replace ourselves. He suggests, if possible, if feasible, have at least three. I don't know what you make of that, but I think there's some wisdom in at least thinking in those terms. Also, when we think about the family, about children, about mom and dad, about marriage, the family also provides the foundational form of government in the world. And this is an important one, I think, too, in our age. When you hear the word government, where does your head automatically go? The state. Do you know that there's many governments that have nothing to do with the province of Manitoba or the nation of Canada? There's many governments. There's self-government, there's family government, there's church government, there's different kinds of uh, government in the commercial field, chambers of commerce and so forth. And what's the very first government that God created? Before there's a nation, before there's a church, there is a family. Okay? Family is the foundational, the first, the primary, and remains the most important government on planet Earth. The family literally is the foundation for everything on planet Earth. Where do little people come from? Okay, where does human government come from other than from people? And marriage is the place where this happens. So when you hear the word government, don't automatically think of the state. And this thinking that we have, in, that it all just automatically goes to the state, goes back to enlightenment thinking, which was a major upheaval. But God has made the world in such a way that he delegates authority into lesser spheres, as we've mentioned. Uh, and there's good that there's separation, right? So you, uh, you probably don't want your family to be in charge of national defense. So you're probably thankful that there's a government that's in charge of national defense that's not your family, okay? You probably don't want any of your church elders coming to discipline your two-year-old, okay? That's a violation of the spheres that God has given these governments to operate in. 
Okay, so he delegates authority into appropriate things, but the foundational government here is the family government. And we conceive, I think, in our time, and again, this goes back to philosophy that we won't get into, but the Enlightenment focused people's minds on themselves as though every individual is the center of the universe. Everyone thinks in terms of themselves, and this is how we get things like trust the science, because man's observation of creation is ultimate, it's authoritative. Or we get the, you know, kind of the romantic notions that I'm the most important thing, me, 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 me. And then we realize uh, this is the f- only the first step in our war against God. Because God says it's all about him. Enlightenment thinking says it's all about man. Man is the measure of all things. And then we realize man as an individual is not strong enough to dethrone God. We need man as a collective. We need a strong central state to help organize all of society. And so that's how we have come to the conception of people as individual citizens in this big state. And there's a strong incentive to not see the family as foundational here. Because families form these little cohesive bonds that slow the advance of the idol of statism down. There's these little platoons, churches and families and communities that stop the advance of statism. So it makes sense that the family is not valued in an age of that kind of statist idolatry. And again, we need to think biblically here. This is why the biblical family is so strongly opposed by some people. Because it's a hindrance to their mission. Some directly oppose it, and others who are more strategic undermine it subtly through art, through storytelling, music, etc. But either way, we are faced with conflicting visions of reality. Which government is ultimate? The family? The state? Which one? And once again, when we are faced with these conflicting visions of the cosmos and how they operate, we learn that the Christian household, with the support of the church, is the most important thing in the fight for God's rule and reign in the cosmos. And here I would suggest, I'm going to later on suggest a couple books, but one I will suggest for you is C.R. Wiley's book, The Household and the War for the Cosmos. It's in the Canon app, so those of you who got the Canon app, you can listen to it uh, on there. And it's a great book talking about the theology of the Christian household, the household economy. And so we need to see value in this so that we can align our practice with the biblical vision. And so we've done the groundwork, and I, wanna, I don't like to over make application because everyone's situation is different. I always feel the best application is if people understand the principle. But to bring this whole series to a close, I do want to make some specific applications to help us flesh this out in real life. And first of all, when it comes to marriage, we've got people here that are too young for marriage, some that are considering it, some are newly married, and some have been married for many years. And your choice of marriage partner is likely the most important decision you will make in your life. And there shouldn't be a point of anxiety if you're trusting the Lord and the providence of God. It shouldn't be in a point of anxiety. But it should merit serious thought and consideration. The Bible gives lots of freedom on whom you marry, but you may only start with a pool that has already been narrowed down of those who are sincere believers. 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? So if you are a Christian, you do not have permission to marry a non-Christian. It's just flat, it's off the table. It's not an option. Don't think about it. Don't consider it. Don't hope that they're going to turn. They won't, <laughs> most likely. Okay? You do not have permission to marry a non-Christian. Flat out, the word of God. Not my idea, God's idea, because this is going to send you... Okay, if you drop a white glove in a mud puddle, you don't say, oh, that puddle got all white glovey. <laughs> okay? It doesn't work that way. The evangelism is usually de-evangelism. Okay? 
a believer yoked to an unbeliever, the default easy route is for the believer to abandon the faith. So you do not have permission to marry an unbeliever, which also means, young people, you don't have permission to date an unbeliever. Okay? You don't have permission to date an unbeliever because dating is a testing process for marriage. You want someone who is at your maturity level or higher, someone who is going to challenge you in your walk with the Lord. And you're thinking, well, that's impossible. You can't have two people both marrying up. I grant there, there is a challenge there. But, but we can find someone who has complementary strengths and weaknesses with ourselves, who is going to challenge us. And so I stand by everything I said about women not nagging or being quarrelsome. But for the young men, at the same time, I need you to realize something. For most young men, it's going to take a godly woman to help you mature. Okay? For most young men, a godly woman is exactly the stretch target you need to take the next step. Okay? And if you're with a girl who is not challenging you that way, you can do two things. You can ask that God would help you to stretch, or you can say, maybe this girl isn't at the maturity level that I need. Maybe she's not for me. And ladies, likewise, I stand by everything I said two weeks ago about men needing to step up and lead. At the same time, before you're married, you have a choice in who you're going to submit to. And so if a young man is not someone you can see yourself respecting or honoring or submitting to, again, you can do one of two things. You can say, this guy is not what I need. He's not mature enough for me uh, to submit myself to. He's not the one. Or you can pray for a more gentle spirit that you would be able to submit to him. And this isn't perfectionism. This isn't waiting for the perfect one. I, and if you're married already, uh, John Piper has a great test to see if you married the right person. If you're wringing your hands, well, did I marry the right person? Did I marry? Here's a great test. Look at your marriage license, and whoever's name is on there is the right one. Okay? You've made the decision. That's the one. That's the one. That's how you can know if you married the right person. Their name is on your wedding certificate. Okay? So we're not talking about being perfect here. We're just talking about having reasonable standards. Don't marry a project. Okay? And I can't stress this enough. I don't know how much heartbreak I have seen, particularly by women marrying a man thinking, well, he's a birdie with a broken wing. I'm going to fix him up. It almost never happens. You can make him feel good about that you can honor him, that you trust his judgment, even when you disagree, and don't nag. And you'll make him stronger as you honor him, which puts him in a stronger and better place to lead you well. And if you're a husband, make sure that you're being considerate of your wife as you lead her. Protect her. Value her opinion. Listen to her ideas before moving ahead. Make sure she feels safe and wanted. And you'll make her feel more secure and more beautiful as you love her, which puts her in a better place to give you what you need. See, this, this loop is always working. It's always working. And this works in the realm of the sexuality and the marriage bond as well. Sex is something that men and women tend to approach very differently. And this can be a point of tension, but it can also be a point of glorious difference. I often think that for women, sex works like a thermometer. It tells you how she is doing. Her availability is a picture of how she currently is feeling, how she is doing. And for men, it's more like a thermostat. It's acting on him, dictating how he will be doing. Okay? And again, if the feedback loop is working properly, a wife tends to be warm and available to her husband, which is going to strengthen and encourage him, which will help him to be more tender with her, which will make her feel more loved, which will make her more available, and on and on it goes. And you can also see how destructively it goes in the opposite direction. And a husband and a wife both have a duty to understand how this dance works and to be understanding of one another. And this is an important aspect of marriage. 
So important that Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 7, 5. Don't neglect this aspect of marriage. It's important. And in all things, whether it be finances, kids, or anything else, be quick to repent and quick to forgive. Don't let the dirty laundry pile up in your house. And the Bible instructs us not to let the sun go down on your anger, Ephesians 4.26. Problems tend to get bigger in your head overnight. So leaving conflict resolved overnight is an invitation for the devil to wreak havoc in your thought life. And when it comes to children, take a biblical posture toward children and just instead of assuming that the world around you is normal. I'll tell you what's not normal is the world around us. Fatherless homes are not normal. Multiple fathers are not normal. And 1.7 children per woman are not normal from any kind of historical vantage point. The Bible defines normal. So assume that children is the normal default setting for a Christian family and that birth control options are lawful if there's legitimate reasons and provided that the methods do not run the risk of being abortifacients, of killing a life that is already conceived. And on the assumption that you will be welcoming children into your home, one of the best pieces of financial advice we ever received was if your wife is working for the first few years before children arrive, never get used to her income. It should never be part of the family budget. Because if it is, it's going to be awfully hard to get rid of it. It's bonus money. It's principal-only payments on your mortgage that goes faster. Pay down extra debt. And when it comes to child rearing, again, another book recommendation I'll give here. We've given it to our young families. I've mentioned it before. Ted Tripp's Shepherding a Child's Heart is excellent. It works on gospel principles instead of on rules or formulas. And it works on this very important formula. The best time to raise a teenager is before they reach the age of four. That's the best time to raise them. Between two and four, you've got the best window to raise teenagers. And you start with basic obedience. Children, you must obey your parents on the first try. If mom has to count to two or three, one, why is she counting to two or three? (laughs) Because you know how that goes, right? One, two, two and a half, two and two thirds, two and three quarters, right? The, the, The child is learning to win and mom is learning to lose. Obedience must be instant when you're a small child. On the first try, delayed obedience is disobedience. So parents, don't get used to losing battles to little ones. You're setting everyone up to fail. And the time to establish parents' authority is when children are small. So that as they grow older, the goal is for parents to have less and less authority and more and more influence. It's like that uh, stage on the training wheels. You know where kids are getting pretty good at riding their bike and the training wheels are still on, mom and dad are still there for a safety blanket, but you watch and the training wheels never touch the ground (laughs) because the kid already knows what they're doing. That's the teenage years. That's the natural transition. We want to launch self-governing Christians out into the world. So the time to use force and authority and instant obedience is when they're small, so that as they grow older, you should slowly be taking it back. And we often work in reverse because little sinners are cute and 17-year-old sinners are not so cute. Okay? And then parents grasp at authority later on. Okay? They start grabbing when they should have done this at age three, and it's tough, and then the teenager rebels more. So if you have a window, do this while your children are young. <clears throat> And little sins are not cute. They should be dealt with while the cement is still wet and movable. For instance, eating is a big one. Picky eating teaches children that their desires reign supreme. And if it's just with food, it seems harmless. But what if the lesson that they've learned their whole life, their desires are supreme, and now that translates into sexual license? Are my desires still supreme? (laughs) Eating what mom gives you when she gives it to you is actually important for your sanctification. Drawing on the wall looks like it's silly when it's a crayon, but what if that turns into vandalism later? 
And the Proverbs have many instructions about using the rod. And this should always be done under control, without anger, without emotion. But an instant connection needs to be made between sin and pain. A spanking ought to be given in private, with time to cry afterwards. And then a conversation needs to happen about how disobeying hurts your heart. And how Jesus is ready to forgive us when we sin. And as children get older, these conversations will become more mature. But the gospel always must be brought to bear. Always. What do we do with dirty hearts? Where are we going to go with our guilt? There should be clear forgiveness and reconciliation at the end of a spanking or any discipline to assure the child that they are loved, that they're safe and secure, and that there is always a path forward for redemption, no matter the sin. And most of the time, if possible, spanking should be administered by dad, if he's at home. Okay? Uh, dad clearly has more authority, but also don't let this become, wait till your father gets home. You don't want to associate dad getting home with work with spanking. <laughs> if mom's the only one at home, mom spanks. Mom takes care of it, okay? If they're both at home, dad, you need to take responsibility. And this is part of your federal headship. Who's ever noticed in Job, when the book opens, Job is praying for his adult children and asking God to forgive their sins? Has anyone ever noticed that? That's federal headship. That's a man who says, even my grown children, I have a duty to pray for their sins, to intercede on behalf of them. And this can take frame at younger ages. And when it comes to worldview, we understand salvation is from the Lord. So we are not ultimately sovereign over the hearts of our children. We must pray for their salvation and clearly communicate law and gospel in our family conversations. And we must also see that Christianity is not just about forgiveness of sins so we can go to heaven when we die. This is true. But Christianity has to seep into everything. Our entertainment choices, the way we handle friendships and relationships. And there's two mistakes that Christians frequently make here. One is, if we have a view of decisional regeneration, we talked about that this morning, that, that you're born again after you decide to be born again. And so salvation is ultimately in man's hands. What can quickly happen is that parents start to get frantic about their children making a choice, making a decision for Jesus, asking Jesus into their heart. And if it doesn't happen by a suitable age, parents start to get frantic and, and they get pushy, or they'll just keep cutting Christianity down, watering it down until they get some base level commitment from their children. And this tends to water down or create shallow Christians. On the other hand, you can have the opposite problem, which is presumptive regeneration, just assuming, well, me and my wife are Christians, therefore it's automatic, our children will be Christians. And so these people don't resort to desperate techniques or to emotional manipulation in order to get a decision because they just assume their kids are automatically saved. They tend to assume that automatically the children of believers are Christians. But if the gospel is assumed, it is only one step away from being neglected altogether. And both approaches tend to produce a kind of fruitless and shallow approach to the Christian life when we're raising our children. And I grew up more on the one side. And then, you know, in boys club, we used to get the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. And some guy would come and share his testimony, how he used to be, you know, handguns and hookers and cocaine. And, and, and then the Lord got a hold of his life. And to God be the glory for that. But then I think a lot of Christian kids go home and feel, oh, I'm defective. I've never done cocaine. I've never been arrested on a handgun charge. My salvation must somehow be defective. Okay? What if Christianity is made to feel normal? What if it's made to feel natural? in the home. Douglas Wilson says that the parents' most respon or biggest responsibility is to give their children a boring, unspectacular testimony, and I do believe that is true. Make it feel natural. God is faithful to a thousand generations, and so we need to think with that Christian worldview in our parenting. Raise your kids with the expectation that God will save them, 
It's not automatic, but we can expect it because God frequently puts means and ends together. And so, yes, salvation is from the Lord. But does it make sense that God would put future Christians in the home of existing Christians? Does that make sense that that's the general pattern? Okay, it does make sense that that's the general pattern. So raise your children accordingly. Just make Christianity feel natural. So it's never this big obstacle or we're not wringing our hands or we're not just assuming. We're just confidently parenting in Christianity. And worldview parenting applies to everything. And so we're always in conversation about the ideas floating around in the world, explaining how unbelievers think so that we can give our kids the tools not to be shocked or intrigued by sin and the terrible ideas that are in the world when they get older. If our Christian parenting can explain the world properly to our kids, we will be able to show the deception of sin. If you've ever been to a magic show and someone explains to you how the magic trick works, you know what you'll never see again? You'll never see a magic trick again. You'll see deception. Okay? When your kids watch music videos, if you don't explain it to them, it looks like magic. All that free sex, all that, you know, guns and girls. And this, is, this is magical. No, no. Explain the deception so that all they see is the deception. There's a lie in every last bit of it. They'll never see the magic again if we can explain the deception to them. Explain a Christian view of vocation and work and responsibility and economics so they won't be seduced by those things. But as you do this, you have to understand it yourself. And so that means as parents, we don't have the option of being lazy. And thankfully, we live in an age rich with books, articles, podcasts, etc. to help us refine our own thinking. And as a church, we're trying to get resources into our hands so that we do understand these things, so we can teach it, so we can be contagious. And we want to keep doing that to help find, uh, feed the minds of young and old so we can see the purposes of Christ everywhere. We want to see all of Christ formed in all of people. And if this seems big or if it's feeling like despair or it's too late, okay, and we have people where this is relevant stuff for the future and there's perhaps some that think, man, I wish I would have known this 30 years ago. We can say with the prophet Zechariah in 4 verse 10, don't despise the day of small beginnings. The gospel of Christ means that all our sins are forgiven, all our sins, past, present, and future, are wiped away, and we bear no shame, no guilt for it whatsoever. And yes, it is true that we do make the most headway, normally, when we work with cement while it is still soft. And the best time to plant a tree is 40 years ago. But you know when the next best time is? Right now. Right now is the next best time. So get to it. Okay? It's not too late. You can still pray. God can still work in ways that we don't expect. He can work just as much with Saul of Tarsus as he can with a sixth generation Christ follower. God does have a way of breaking stony hearts and replacing them with hearts of flesh even after the cement has hardened. So whatever you do, do not despair or think it's too late. God takes us where we are and not where we should have been. And where you are is also part of his providential governance of all things. God is not a butterfingers. You have not slipped through his fingers. If you're hearing this, then start today. Start small, okay? Your sins are forgiven if you're in Christ. All past failures, all past shame is gone. And this is where all this, marriage, child-rearing, everything, it must be grounded in the gospel of free grace of Jesus Christ, that we can do this without shame, without embarrassment, without regret, as children of Christ. Let's pray. Father God, I want to thank you for what your word teaches us about our gender about the nature of marriage, about the nature of children, and why you give us children, why 
why this weird and wonderful world of man and woman uniting together and creating children is even in existence. Lord, and I pray that we would be intentional about thinking these things through, thinking how we raise our children, thinking how we teach, thinking how we approach dating, how we approach marriage, how we approach grandparenting. Lord, and I pray for each one in this room, whether they are too young to be thinking about these things, whether they're right at the door, whether they're two years in, or whether they're 50 years in. Lord, or whether you have called some to be single and uh, childless, and then they can act and practice this in different ways. Lord, I pray that your spirit would make application to each of us, wherever you have us. Lord, I pray that we would not despise the day of small beginnings. I, think, I pray that we would be delighted that you take us where we are, not where we should have been, and I pray that each one of us can start today to do what is in our power, to make you known, to live for your glory, and to make that contagious with those around us. Lord, I pray for all the children here and future children. Lord, we pray that you would do a mighty work in their hearts. I pray that we as a church would be a praying people. Lord, work mightily in the prayers of our parents, the prayers of our loved ones. Lord, that we would see you work many generations of those who love you. Build your church here and across the world. Lord, and I pray that we would do our part to man our station as we uh, act on your behalf as husband, as wife, as parents, and as children that we would fill our little corner with the knowledge of you and your purposes. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for the forgiveness of sin. Thank you for the removal of shame. And thank you for spirit-enabled marriage and parenting. We commit this all into your hands. Amen. Please stand for the closing song.
So the charge is this. Marriage and family are key pieces of the story that God is telling in his cosmos. The one flesh union between a man as covenant head and a woman who is building her home ideally pictures Christ as the true and perfect covenant head, building his kingdom through the work of his bride, the church. This union is close, intimate, life-giving, and fruitful. Christian child-rearing is a means of fruitfulness, dominion, and fulfilling the Great Commission no differently than evangelism and missions, and we need to treat it with the same spiritual weight. Glory is always heavy, and this is why joy can indeed accompany even heartbreak, confusion, and exhaustion. Our charge in this series is for your eyes to be open to the glory that is all around you. Being a man is glorious. Being a woman is glorious. Marriage is glorious. And the little people that result from that marriage bond are glorious. Christian, you are surrounded by glory on all sides. Ask the Spirit to help you see it. And then labor in the heavy joy as you fulfill your calling as man or woman, wherever God has placed you, determining to return his gifts back to him 30, 60, or even 100 fold. And then receive the benediction from Hebrews 13, 20, and 21. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever.